Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, happy new year. So since it's the new year, I want to let you know about a big project we're launching over the 10% Happier app. Um, we're running a free 21-day meditation challenge during the month of January. This is uh, a really – we did this last year. People got a lot out of it. Um, it. As I said, it's free. You're going to do it with thousands of other people, including me and including uh, Alexis Santos, one of our most popular meditation teachers. Um, if you join the challenge, you'll, be, you'll get to see when I've meditated, when Alexis has meditated. We'll get to see when you do it. And, um, yeah, I think it's going to be super fun, and this is a great way to to get people motivated and inspired and uh, to boot up uh, an abiding habit. You can sign up today in the app. Um, you can – if you don't have the app, you can download it and sign up there. Uh, there are also some links in the show notes with more information. The challenge begins on Monday, January 6th, so we'll see you there. Okay, time for the episode. Uh, I have to say – I. I know I say this a lot, but I actually – I especially mean it for this episode. Uh, I re- I loved this interview and I – it was quite meaningful to me personally. I've spoken on the show before about the fact that I get a little crazy, dysregulated around um, sort of body image and food stuff. Um, and Evelyn Triple gave me just a brand new way to think – about this content, a brand new way. I think it's been a, a minute since I recorded this. We recorded it a few weeks ago, uh, actually, when I was out in San Francisco. Um, and I think in the middle of it, I stopped to just point out that she's amazing. And she really is. Uh, she is a very experienced uh, dietitian. Uh, she, in fact, she used to be uh, the expert on nutrition for Good Morning America. Um, she's written nine books. She's got a nutrition counseling practice in Newport Beach, California. Uh, her, the the book for which she's probably best known is called Intuitive Eating, and it has uh, it's a whole. It's I, I we're calling this episode the anti diet because that's really what it is. Her argument is diets diets don't work, and this her approach does, and that has been borne out in. Um, over 90 studies showing the benefit of uh, of of intuitive eating uh, in and I have to say I've really been experimenting with this and I find it fascinating. Um, I want to say before we get started here uh, that she uh, th- this episode is part of a whole series we're doing during the month of January where we're looking at um, exercise, sleep, uh, meditation, and diet. And if you uh, are tuning in late and you've missed some of the previous ones, go back in your podcast feed and check them out because this is um, – I think we, we're really onto something in terms of uh, helping people boot up healthy habits in a healthier way that involves a lot less shame and self-flagellation. Uh, one final thing to say about uh, Evelyn before we dive in here is that she has quite a deep meditation practice and also a wicked laugh, which you're about to hear a lot of. So here we go. Evelyn Triblet. Great to meet you. Like, likewise. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for making time for this. Yeah, Appreciate it. absolutely. Um, so uh, how did you get into meditation? It's so bizarre. <laughs> I have, it was a circuitous route. Um, the long short story is when my mom was dying of cancer, I had to keep missing uh, sessions with patients. And I would tell them why so I didn't think I was flaky. 
And so a patient of mine gave me a book called Mindful Grieving. And I remember looking at it and thinking, why in the hell do I want to feel my grief? I am a 10 of sadness. And it broke me open because I noticed during those times I, I practiced some mindfulness as I knew it back then. I was just a little baby meditator. <laughs> um, but I noticed there was times I was neutral. There was times I actually was happy, even though knowing my mom was dying. And so it opened something up. Huh. And then I ended up taking a, this is, this is really funny. I took a professional retreat uh, with someone who's a Zen, Zen master and a pediatrician. It's for health professionals. And I'll never forget the second time they made us meditate, I thought I was going to die. I called my best friend. They made, they made us meditate two times. <laughs> now we're going to go into silence. And long story short, here I am. I, I fell in love with meditation. I now train with um, Dan Brown, who's just an amazing teacher for me. You know, Dan, I don't, I've never met Dan Brown. He's at Harvard? He's at Harvard. And the thing that appeals to me personally, I'm a skeptic. That's what I loved about your story. I'm a skeptic. I'm always the one asking the questions. And because he's also an academic and a practitioner, he is a very satisfying relationship with my mind, you know, and he's, uh, he's just really, really gifted and, uh, and, and one of the most humblest persons I've ever met, especially being at Harvard, you know, so. How, uh, how did you find him? I, oh, I, I got his book. It's a really, really big book about the stages of meditation, Mahamudra, pointing out the way. And I bought it, put it down. Five years later, I picked it up and it blew me away. And I, had the, I realized I had the illusion I was meditating, but I was not meditating properly. And I thought, I've got to go meet this guy. I've got to go train with him. And I did. And that's what uh, it just knocked me over. So when you say you weren't meditating properly, but he pointed out the way to do it properly, what, yeah. was, what, were the difference, what was the difference there in the technique between? The, the biggest technique is, you know, how with meditation, your mind goes all over the place. Yeah. And one of the techniques he has, I won't go into de- detail since I'm not a teacher, but he really has you practice the awareness of your breath the entire way and really noticing when you leave, noticing when you have partialized concentration and these types of things. And so the other thing I like about him as a teacher, when you go into retreat with him, he's there the whole time. Usually in other retreats I've been in, you have a teacher for maybe about an hour and then, but there's constant uh, interaction, which for me is, uh, I connected with it very deeply. So you, when you say you went and met him, did you just say, hey, can I get a little bit of your time or did you show up? At no, no, no. I showed up to one of his retreats. I signed up and it was so funny. It was held at a monastery. So I was like, oh my God, I'm going in deep here. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. It was really, really great. And I have become, you know, you talk about being 10% happier. I think I'm a, I'm a 10% better person, which makes people around me happy. <laughs> <laughs> Were you complex before? Uh... I didn't think I was. I didn't think I was reactive. And now I realize, holy moly, was I so reactive. But the thing that has changed with me, I was telling this with Dan, we just met a couple months ago, is that I have changed. I actually, this is going to sound terrible. Before I would do the right thing because you're supposed to, but now like, I actually genuinely care. It, I, I, it's hard to put into words what this is, but this connection and this compassion, and you talk a lot, a lot about the woo stuff, the mushy stuff, and I'm like that. And now here I am talking about the woo mushy stuff, and it's like, oh, we have to end all suffering. And so what this has done in my career, oh, you get it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a woo person. Uh, but it has lit my, my, my passion for what I do to a level I didn't expect would happen, to put an end to unnecessary suffering as it relates to mind and body, because there's so much unnecessary suffering around eating. And, and body and judgment and shame. And you talk about conceptual mind. Oh, my gosh. The rules and the concepts and the judgments that are out there. <sighs> and uh, it's, it's neat to watch people's lives change. You know, it's, there's a technique that we created through intuitive eating over 25 years ago. We've updated it all along. And the cool thing is there's now research on our, our method. And it just, it just warms my heart in ways I just can't begin to describe. 
We're going to go deep on diet culture, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but let's just stay with your practice for a second. Of course. So would you call yourself now a Buddhist? Oh, I am a Buddhist. I, yes. did, I did take refuge, yeah. But, you know, it's funny. I don't talk about Define it. Define taking refuge just for people. It's just, I mean, you take a vow that basically, you know, you, you take refuge in. You, you're just... You take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Sangha, yeah. yeah. And, you know, one of the most troubling parts of it, this is going to sound really silly, but I'll just show you where I was back at the time, is that they have to, have to cut off some of your hair. And I've heard you talk about your own hair. So the idea of losing some of your hair <laughs> for a ceremony, it was just, uh, it was, it's, it's about letting go and not having attachment. But the reason I don't usually talk about it is I don't like to be in that othering place, being different. I'd rather find what we have in common because as soon as someone's, as soon as I say I'm Buddhist, then walls might come up from some other people, you right. know. But the, I consider myself a secular Buddhist, meaning I don't know what happens in the life after, but I love the principles and the philosophies and it's, it's a beautiful way to live without, Without judgment, without having to recruit other people. Yes. So. Yes, that's exactly the way I feel. Oh, yay! Yeah. Yay! Exactly the way I feel. Yeah. Um, so what flavor of Buddhism did you join for Well, it's kind word? of interesting. I didn't tell you about the, the, the detour I took with uh, Shambhala, and I learned a lot of uh, Buddhism and did a lot of training with them. I was on a path to become a teacher. I, I could do what I call baby teaching, or I could teach meditation on an in- individual level or, or lead meditation in, in a group setting, but Can not I just tell people what Shambhala is? Oh, please. So Shambhala is a Buddhist lineage, I guess, to, uh, founded by a controversial Tibetan uh, teacher by the name of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Correct. Mouthful. He was born in Tibet, had a very traumatic exit from there when the Chinese invaded, and then ultimately made his way to the West where he dropped a robe, started wearing suit and tie, also became an alcoholic, I guess, and embodied, uh, drank himself to death ultimately, embodied what he called crazy wisdom. So he was controversial for all of the aforementioned reasons, and yet many of his students really are quite loyal to this day. And so Shambhala is the system he left behind. They have centers all over the place. Yeah. And it was taken over by his son, the Sakyang, Sakyang Mm -hmm. Mipam Rinpoche, who's been on this show. Oh, really? Yes. uh, Before he then got into trouble and Mm -hmm. was uh, drummed out in Me Too. I don't know the exact nature of the allegations, but it was... uh, It was disturbing to read all the reports, and that's ultimately why I left. Um, Actually, I was still... I was starting to already train with Dan. I knew I was going to be leaving Shambhala, but when that happened, it's like, I'm out. I can't support a system in which there's been so much abuse of power at such... um, at so many different levels. But I will say the weird thing is, and the part I'm grateful for, the teachings that I learned really helped me. It helped me, helped me open my mind, helped me to, to where I am right now. But the way I look at it is, would I refer a patient there? And my answer is absolutely not. You need to go into a place of safety. And when there's been places of, of abuse, people that often enter meditation come in in a really vulnerable spot, you know. And I know this is not unique to other organizations, but it's just, it's really disturbing to see. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm no longer with the group. That I mean, uh, I don't know the Sakyong very well other than the one or two times we met. And I, I definitely didn't know his dad, but I've, I know a lot of people who were close to him. And it's a puzzle because he was by, by many sort of, I, guess, I don't know if like we could call them objective measures, but if you look at his writing, um, uh, look at his teachings, he clearly uh, had wisdom. And yet in his behavior, I mean, there's a documentary about him called Crazy Wisdom. I think you can see it on YouTube. Yeah, it's, um, it's available. You know, he was sleeping with his followers and uh, obviously drunk a lot. And so it's 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 a puzzle. For, you know, I, I don't know much about him. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to say talk as if I've got some sort of encyclopedic 
understanding, but um, it's not surprising for me to hear you were discomfited by the culture, and yet you learned a lot. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting? Because when I started to be, go down the training path, that to me is an obligation. I did due diligence, and I, I, was not, I was not comfortable with the history of the founder, but I was comfortable with their, all their policies of care and conduct. It's like, okay, it was in the 60s. I don't get it. I don't agree with it, but no one's trying to absolve him. But when this new set of things happened, that was, that was it for me. It reminded me of what you see in, in family systems of toxicity that, that, that go down from generation to generation. It needs to heal and... Anyway, that's a whole other story. So, yeah. yeah. So I'm grateful for what I learned. Uh, that's, that's the good news on that. It didn't turn my, my mind, and it get, got me incredibly ready for uh, reading. I think that's why I was able to read Dan's book. When I first bought it, I couldn't even understand it. I just put it aside, and I was getting ready to lead a meditation. We do this thing called contemplation. After doing two rounds of meditation, you now take the awareness of your mind and you put it on a phrase. And as a leader, you get to pick what that is. And I was looking for some new material, and I go, I'm going to look at Dan's book again. And that's when I found the stuff, and I couldn't put it down, and that's what, that, that, that was what, what my change was. So what, what flavor of Buddhism is Dan? Well, you know, he, he's in the lineage of Rime, which is it's been around for 200 years, and that's where they take what they consider best practices in all the different traditions and teach based on that oh. way. So whoever they think does the best concentration technique, that's who they use. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of cool, oh. you know? Oh. Yeah. So it's like um, the, the Zoroastrians are coming to mind. You know, the, the <laughs> I don't. Ancient, <laughs> I have never heard of them. Um, I believe there is a religion, a Persian religion, that was a com- sort of a cafeteria-style combination of all of the pre-existing Abrahamic religions. Oh, okay. And, but sounds like this is like the ver- Bo- Dan is doing the Buddhist version of that in some way. Yeah, and he calls it best practices. And so he blends Western with, with Eastern tradition really quite well. And because he's also an academic, he does amazing research on meditation and all kinds of stuff. So I just it's, – it's actually a very cool experience being a student of his. So what for you, you know, given your life history was – the most valuable application in, of Buddhism internally? Was it the kind of the calming of the mind that comes with learning how to focus on the breath and then when you get distracted, starting again? Was it the mindfulness that comes from doing that where you see how crazy you are and then the craziness doesn't own you as much? Or was it what you were describing earlier, this kind of compassion? Or a combination of all of the aforementioned? I'm going to answer it in a different way. Uh, it's funny, when I'm meditating, I don't get into all these places that some people do. But I see the meaning, um, all these experiences, meditating, realizing aspects of the mind. Um, what it does for me is like this is slow unfolding. All of a sudden I realize, my God, I've changed because I'm not reactive. Oh, my gosh, I have discernment in places. So I call it freeze frame moments. I'm going to tell you an experience only because you might relate to it because of your son. So my son was about three and I was on a book deadline and I, my office downstairs I was facing the computer. He comes in and he says, hi, mommy. I don't even see him, but something caused me to turn around and look in his little eyes and something was off. And I go, are you okay? And all of a sudden he starts crying. He just watched uh, Goofy goes to college. He goes, I don't want to go to college and leave you. I can't leave you. Uh. <laughs> and that, that scene haunted me. Not haunted me. I thought, I'm so glad I paid attention. This was before meditation, but I call that a freeze frame moment. So what happens now being a meditator, I have a lot more of those freeze frame moments where I notice something and I do something with it or I just notice it. And maybe I become not reactive or maybe I have more discernment in what I, what I decide to do. It's, um, I have more patience like I've never had. And I, I'm kind of a high energy person and pretty, uh, and it's, I'm damp- I've dampened down a little bit. <laughs> Wow, uh, what were you like before? <laughs> so that's the other thing. I've I've had some people say, "Oh, they're afraid that they would change if they became a meditator." I said, "Actually, I don't. I haven't changed as far as my personality. The energy, the passion is still there, 
And uh, but the difference is that the compassion and the less reactivity. I'm a, I'm a better person because of right, that. right. I mean, I've experienced the same thing. I mean, I still have many, many, many flaws. It's just that the volume comes down a little bit on the flaws. You have feel like you have more visibility of them and into them and agency in the face of them. So yeah. uh, there's a Tibetan phrase that I've quoted many times on the podcast that for enlightenment it translates into a clearing away. Yeah. And a bringing forth. Oh my like gosh! You clear away a lot of the noise and junk, and you bring forward the, your 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 the better angels of your nature, or just sort of your better judgment, et cetera, et cetera. And that's my experience of how this works. I, I would completely agree with that. It's it's hard to put it into words, and it's a slow unfolding. And sometimes I'm hesitant to put it into words and talk about how amazing I feel because I don't want to have an expectation of someone to be disappointed. This is a slow evolution where you kind of look back off the cushion and go, "Wow." You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So, okay, so how does everything we've just discussed apply to eating? Oh, I'm going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Bear in mind, that cackle you just heard is from a practicing Buddhist. That's correct. So it doesn't take away everything you came into the practice with. I say that with approval. Thank you. I I feel really validated. Not that I need it, but I do. (laughs) So here's one way I'd like to say it. Just as the practice of meditation is an inside job, it's inside. The practice of intuitive eating is also an inside job. And it's about connecting to your body. And, okay, I have to tell you, I'm also a geek. I love research. And one of the... You're, you're going to love this. place, so you can, you, can, oh, yay. you can drop as much science as you want. Oh, thank God. So this is going inter- to intersect in a way I think you might like. And if you don't, that's okay, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the basis of intuitive eating, it's a self-care eating framework. And it's, it's based off of something... What does that mean? I'm going to tell you. Okay. So taking care of yourself on a, on a superficial level, but on a deeper level, it's based around something called interceptive awareness. That term, what that means, it's our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise within the body. I know you know that experience through meditation, but Mm -hmm. let me tell you what's so brilliant about it. It it reveals states like a full bladder. People know what to do with a full bladder, thank God. Um, Hunger and fullness states, but every emotion has a physical sensation. And so when we're in touch with the physical sensations of our body, we are actually have a treasure trove of information to get our needs met. All of this is happening in the right side of the brain in the insula. And guess what? Meditators have more insula, uh, interceptive awareness, which is kind of cool. I consider it our superpower. So when we're aware of physical sensations, it's giving us information like, what do I need right now? Do I need to sleep? Am I lonely? These kinds of things. The problem and the challenge in today's culture, diet culture, is that people are at war with their bodies. And when you hate your body, you're at war with your body, you're not listening to the messenger. It's, it's like your, friend, your best friends knock on the door, hey, hey, I have some information for you. And you're like, go away, go away. Uh, when you respond to that information, it's called interceptive uh, receptivity. But we're saying, ah, get out of here. And then when people start down the rabbit hole of all these different kinds of diets, lifestyles, whatever you want to call it, they disconnect from their body and they start to distrust these sensations because they're trying to fake it out. Fake hunger, fake fullness. You know, it's all this biohacking. Oh, let's biohack and be extra this, extra that. When it's like, how about listening to our bodies? What about that? Okay. I have a million questions. Oh, please. Um, let me just start with the, the, the basis or foundational question. So intuitive eating was something you designed 25 years ago yeah. before you started meditating. Correct. Okay. So you stick by that framework, but you supercharge it with the mindfulness. Is that a correct? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting. It's, it's kind of not correct because I'll tell you what, mindful eating and intuitive eating are two different things. They're very compatible and they're different. And one of the biggest differences with intuitive eating, one of our biggest directives, there's 10 principles, is reject the diet mentality. 
mindful-based eating doesn't, doesn't have that. You absolutely need awareness to access intuitive eating for sure. In fact, when we wrote the book, John Kabat-Zinn's book, Full Catastrophe of Living, was only out, I think, for about four or five years. It was the first time I'd seen the term mindful eating used in the vernacular. And because mindfulness wasn't in the vernacular, we used the description of having conscious consciousness, which now I would say having awareness around it. So I would say anyone coming in from a, a mindfulness-based background or meditation background is going to have more access to it. I get excited when I have meditators as as patients and clients because they can access this a little bit better. But living in diet culture, they used to have rules and judgments they're not even aware of. It's like, you know, fish and water. Like what's what's water, right? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right, right. So so mindful eating would just be in my experience of it, uh, and, and you'll correct me, is is just bringing your full attention to the process of eating, which if you, if you have, if anybody's ever gone on a meditation retreat, you eat slowly, you're doing everything slowly. Yeah. You eat less, you find, because you're aware when you're full and you're actually tasting your food and putting your fork down between bites, et cetera, et cetera. Something I've had trouble doing off retreat. Um, so I understand that. Yeah. I think if I'm if I'm if I'm stating it correctly, you are. I. Yeah. You so one can do that without having a conscious rejection of the the water that you reference, which is the diet culture in which we all swim. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a faithful reproduction of what you just said? No. Okay. <laughs> all right. And I will tell you why. Because people are not aware of the diet culture. So they might be saying that they're listening to their hunger and fullness. And that's awesome. That's a great start. That part is correct. But if in their mind they're saying, I shouldn't be eating this much because that's the rules of diet culture, that interferes with the awareness. They're not even aware of that. That's an issue. So sometimes my favorite question to ask meditate. Oh, I'm going to ask you a question. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Because I've struggled with with this stuff. Oh, so my question to you, Dan, is where does your mind go when you're eating? I don't know. See? Oh, okay. That's what I'm talking about. Most people don't. And so um, I think mindful eating is is an awesome thing. I I went to one retreat with a practitioner. I thought if I'm going to train with someone, I want to really understand the model. And it's beautiful. You're into sensation of eating, taste, texture, all that kind of stuff, how it feels. But working with the mind in terms of where you're going, are you comparing your body with someone else's body? Are you comparing your food to someone else's food that's sitting next to you? You're thinking, oh, my God, they got more than I did when you're at retreat. That happens a lot, you know? Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes, I'm sorry, I'm talking really fast. Um, so part of what this is, so here's, here's the conundrum that I see a lot. Years ago when I would ask somebody, you know, could you eat your meals without distraction? I used to get a pretty much a yes onto that. And now it's as if I'm asking to give away their firstborn because the question I guess, what would I do? What would I do? Because you're so used to the mind being yes. occupied. And so one thing I will start with is, well, could you, could you commit to one meal? You know, and I don't want to make someone do what they don't. I, I, res- I will always respect honesty. If the answer is no, then okay, we're going to find another way. And where I'm at right now with some people is like, how about can you commit to three bites and having awareness? The first bite, the middle bite, the end bite, just to get some connection of what's going on. What's the food taste like? What's your body feel like? You know, all these kinds of things that go on. And so what I find that's missing in the meditators that I've worked with is not knowing where the mind goes when they're eating. They think that, oh, I'm eating without distraction. This is really great. And I would say, yeah, that, that's great. But where's the mind? Where's the mind? And if your mind is in distraction, then you're not really connecting with your body. But the cool thing is, you get to the point of effortless effort. You don't have to be a monk and meditate to get this process down. But when you're in the learning curve, it helps to have more of this awareness. And we know from research on, on neuroplasticity, for, for uh, neurons to rewire together, to fire together, there has to be awareness at the time. And this is coming out of Andrew Huberman's lab out of uh, Stanford. So I think it's a really cool thing, you know? So I just want to... Keep 
pushing a little bit oh, on, keep pushing. on the difference. I, I, I think I think by this point, the listener will have understood what mindful eating is, which is, again, bringing your full attention to the best of your ability while you're eating yeah. to the tastes of the food, to the sensations in your body. And then when you get distracted, starting again. Right. So I think that we've got that down. So what's left for us to do right now is to dive deeper into intuitive eating and, yeah. and what the difference is there. Right, right, right. So I'll say one more thing, and then I'll get into those differences. So a scholar, we were in this great discussion on Facebook on what is intuitive eating, and the intuitive eating folks were writing beautiful things. I wrote beautiful things, I thought, on intuitive eating. And she comes in and says, well, I think intuitive eating is a framework of self-care eating, and mindful, mindful eating is a skill set. I thought, oh, my God, that's beautiful, and it's nice and short. So that's another way of looking at it as okay. well. Very compatible. That's the thing, if anything, your listeners come away with this, is very compatible. But when you start looking at it from a research base, it's important to know there's a difference in this so yeah so one of the big things is rejecting the diet mentality and one of my I actually had a debate I was on a conference panel with some mindfulness experts and I said you know my, my position is it puts people on the path of unnecessary suffering if we can't already let them know I'm part of the secret <laughs> and that is if you're dieting it's going to hijack this whole process when you're dieting the mind goes external how much in this how much in that how much do I weigh what about the macros and we need to be going inside instead so it's, it's, it's a path to having less suffering but don't we need to know – you referred to macros. Macro, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I did that. Yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but don't we need to have the basics of nutrition down? For example, I went to a – I moved uh, – I gave up animal products about, mm. about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. And I had to do a big education with a nutritionist, a vegan nutritionist who mm-hmm. taught me how to do this without making myself sick. Yeah. So learning that and getting a sense of like, am I getting enough protein today? Uh, so that I have enough energy. Don't I need to have some external... Well, here, the answer is kind of. And here's how here I will say it. The 10th principle of intuitive eating is on your health with gentle nutrition. And the reason we kept it as we made it the last principle, Elise and I both have master's science degrees in nutrition. I she's mean, your co-author. She's the co-author. What's her name again? Elise Resch. Okay. Yeah. And and we love, I especially, I'm, I'm the nerd geek on, on the team and I love science and I lo- we love nutrition. But what we found is if we introduce that too soon, it interferes with the process of checking in. So it's more of a, a timing issue. Yes, health absolutely counts, but if we do it too soon, it becomes problematic. Gotcha. So, okay, so we don't need to go there now. Okay, Correct. So, uh, so walk us through the rest of the principles. Okay, so we reject the diet mentality. That's, that's easy. One. That's easier said than done because it's everywhere. Um, honoring your hunger, that's pretty straightforward. Honor your hunger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't stifle it if you're hungry. Yeah, this is actually a normal experience. It lets us know we need to eat. It's, and, and actually the, the sad part is, and I've seen this a lot with my patients, is if you try and ignore hunger and you try to fake it out, guess what happens? You end up into this, what I call primal hunger. You cross that line, I don't care, I'm going to eat you. I'm so yes, hungry. Yes, yes. And, and people have a lot of guilt around that, and they don't realize, guess what? This is your biology. This is your body really, really working well. We've seen that in a classic Minnesota starvation study. I don't know if you're familiar with no. that. Oh, my God, can I tell you about it? Yes. So these guys were college-age <laughs> men who uh, conscious, conscious objectors in World War II. And just to be in this study, they had to be super-duper healthy, biologically and psychologically, passed all these exams. Uh, And then they were put on a semi-starvation diet for a period of months, and we saw what happened to them. Predictably, they became malnourished, but what was really shocking is what happened to their mind. They started collecting recipes and cookbooks, and all they would do is talk about food. And when I give this talk at universities, I tell them, and these men lost interest in sex. And when I say that, they go, oh! They know how profound that is because the, there's, no, there's no energy. Then some of the men started binge eating. 
and uh, cre- creating eating disorders. And on average, these guys were getting, they weren't starving. They were having around 1,700 calories a day. So this became the first study on the, con- the psychological consequences of, of, of under, under eating. Huh. So we've known this. And since then, when we've looked at all the research that's come out on dieting, when you diet, it messes up your mind like, oh, it increases risk of eating disorders. The act of dieting actually causes rebound weight gain. Most people don't know this, but by year five, it's going to come back. The most uh, consistent predictor of weight gain is dieting, going on a diet, regardless of how much weight you started uh, with, right? So, so uh, shout out to Grace Livingston, uh, one of the producers on the show, who sent me, uh, and this may be an excerpt from you. Oh, oh. But there is not a, this is a quote here. There is not a single long-term study that shows that weight loss dieting is sustainable. Study after study shows that dieting and food restriction for the purpose of weight loss leads to more weight gain. Yes, weight gain. Worse, the focus and preoccupation on weight leads to body dissatisfaction and weight stigma, which negatively impacts health. Yeah. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that shocking? So when I have talk conversations with doctors, I would say, you know, would you prescribe a medication that by year five actually causes more problems, that actually causes heart attacks as opposed to clearing out arteries? And they're like, hell no. And it's like, well, why would you prescribe weight loss then? And it's a complex area of science. And so what a lot of healthcare pr- practitioners do is they follow policy, but they're not following the research. It doesn't work. So then the question is, what do we do? Well, we can still do healthy behaviors. Weight's not a behavior. Weight is not a behavior. And then people have so much shame when the weight comes back. And when they're losing the weight, like especially on Instagram, oh my gosh, all the before and after. And it's so loud. Oh, look at me. I feel so good. And then when it all comes back, you don't hear a thing. You don't hear like, I feel awful. I can't stop eating. So binge eating is really common, a common consequence of dieting in terms of in terms of harm, you know? But is there anything wrong with wanting your body to look a certain way? You know, it's a really good question. I think in today's culture, the answer is it, it's it's all around us that kind of pressure. So the real issue when I when I'm working with patients that want to do this work is I'll tell them, can you put this idea of weight loss on the back burner? Because if it's your primary directive, it's going to interfere with the process. And I can't even tell you what's going to happen to your body with intuitive eating. You might stay the same. You might lose weight. You might gain weight um, because this is about healing your relationship with food. But it's it's a it's a really tough one. I say especially for women in this culture, but men as well. When you start looking at the incidence of eating disorders, one out of three people with an eating disorders identifies as a man. And the thing I find that's so disturbing is that eating disorder rates have doubled. Uh, a new study just came out in May looking at 90 different studies. They have doubled because diet, in my opinion, diet culture has normalized this unhealthy relationship I with food. I wonder if social media is part of that as well. Oh, I, I'm sure it is. Um, yeah. But so, so I'll just ta- speak personally. I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Um, a little bugaboo of mine is I, I, I'm 48 as we record this. I had like a brief shining moment in my 30s where I was single and uh, uh, was very fit, very fit. And for the first time in my life, I had like visible abs. Uh-huh. And it's created this little hobgoblin for me, this little bugaboo uh. of I, you know, I, I, I don't like as I've gotten older that I have more – sort of girth around yeah. the belly, even though it's not much. I'm a, I'm a slim guy. And and yet I notice it coming up and up again and again in this sort of self-critical loop in my mm-hmm. head. So I wonder, are, is what you're saying to me, just drop that, you know, and is that even doable, dropping the desire to have the body look a certain way? So my, my, my short answer is yes. Drop it, Dan. <laughs> 
But it, that's a hard thing to say to anyone when they have that desire because our culture reinforces this all the time. And so I start looking at how does this make you feel, this constant comparison to a time in your past. Awful. So that's the thing I look at. So this is where we use the, the, you know, the, the mind of meditation. And that is let's get a curious non-judgment. How does it make you feel? Oh, I'm here again. I'm comparing. Oh, how's it, how's it affect yeah. your eating? And here's the thing that just kills me, how it affects relationships, especially if you're really pursuing it because you're going out to dinner with your wife or your friends and instead of really engaging in the conversation, the back of your mind is chattering about, well, I want to look this way. I want to look this way. The diet says this or diet says that and you're not connected. You literally just described like my last few dinners. Thank you. So that's harm. That's harmful. And so I think that's why I get so many people unsolicited emails and DMs. Oh my God, this changed my life. And I think it changes because you're starting to connect with the people that are with you as opposed to playing that game where you're talking to someone on the cell phone and they're, they're there, they're saying the right words, but you can tell they're not there. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. But, but how to, you, you acknowledge to your credit um, that this is hard to do. So I, yes. I mean, I, the, you know, I pass reflective surfaces on the regular in my bathroom yeah. um, as I'm getting ready. And it's just this automatic thing of, oh, yeah, you know, how does the body look? Right. Um, and then it's a spiral into negativity. Now, I've, I've actually done a reasonable amount of work. Thanks to the aforementioned Grace Livingston, who's who uh, is very interested in this stuff, and Yay. also the work of uh, Kristen Neff, who's oh, she's who's, awesome. Yeah, who writes a lot about self compassion. So I have these little mental habits yeah. that I've tried to develop. That when I notice that voice kicking in, right? One, you know, uh, Kristen Neff has this great three part thing. The first is uh, just to notice mindfully that you're, that, yeah, this sucks. This is suffering. Two, to um, to tune into the fact that there are millions of people right now dealing with this exact same thing to sort of widen the lens, yeah. so you have more perspective. And three, to send yourself a little bit of good vibes. Oh, I like that. But I, while I found this to be a useful sort of circuit breaker on this mm-hmm. um, habit loop, this habitual self laceration, I still have this question looming of, well, aren't, isn't a, a a certain body type, you know, muscular, visible muscles, isn't that a sign of good health? And therefore, isn't it rational that I should want this? Well, that's a loaded question. So I'm going to answer it many ways, if I may. You you can go as long as you want. Thank you. So first of all, you cannot tell by looking at someone's body at the health of their body. Huh. So there's someone who's kind of well-known on Instagram named uh, Latoya Shanti, who last year got fat shamed at the New York Marathon, mile 21 or 22. She's in a big body. She acknowledges that. She's as fit as can be. So you can't tell by looking at someone's body. But because of all the images we see on, on social media, and then you being in the media yourself, there's a pressure you have that I would say the average man doesn't have. Yeah, I got to look at my face on television all the time. Yeah. And so so part of this, I actually do another tech. I love Kristen Neff. We actually adapted some of her work in our, our workbook to work with these kinds of things. And we'll, so we'll put a link to her interview in the show notes of this Oh, awesome. Episode. So I think one of the things we have to recognize here, when you're talking about body in this case, you're talking about a belief system and a value system. So this is not just have happy thoughts and it goes away. This is, we have to root this out and this is going to take time and practice. So the only time, no, well, so one of the things I've, I just got really curious with somebody who happened to be like a math genius and I said to her how many when did you start having thoughts about your body negative thoughts I think for her it was age 10 I think she was 40 when I was talking to her and I said how many times a day do you think you've had these negative thoughts and let's multiply it out it was like 50 million or something like that so so much suffering it's so much suffering, but the point is so much suffering, absolutely. So you're having 50 million hits of body shame versus 
three hits of a Kristen, uh, Kristen Neff technique, which is awesome. But sometimes people have the expectation that I'm going to use some loving kindness and self-compassion. And I'm going to be all kumbaya with my body. And my answer is, I would love if that was true, but we need to know it's going to take time and space because it's all around us. And so it's going to take these repetitions. And one thing I would add to this when it comes to bodies is to recognize I am not a body. You have done some awesome things in your career. I, I think I told you, I, I read your book. And it's like, damn, look at all the stuff you've done. You're not a body. You're, you're, a, you're a dad. You're a reporter. You've done all these amazing things. You are not a body. So sometimes I will have people acknowledge that I am not a body. For some people, here's a little Buddhism. I ask people, what's your body lineage? And like, what do you mean? I said, well, what about your mom and dad? How do they feel about their bodies? How about your grandparents? And looking how it uh, comes down the family tree, it's like, ooh, no wonder this is not so easy just to uproot with a couple of compassionate, compassionate thoughts. It's something we need to do, but it's going to take time. And then in your case, you know, you've, you've got a family. And so one of the things I love to say when I'm working with parents is I would love to stop the legacy in your family. I don't want your son to have these kinds of worries. I want him to go, go, go f- have fun and play or go school instead or whatever he wants to do, but not be worried about the value of his body. Just to be clear, just to emphasize a point you made before, you're not saying be unhealthy. Correct. Uh, oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that. No, yeah. I I, ha- yeah. I met just the other day a wo- another woman, not the woman you referenced, who uh, is in a big body herself, mm-hmm. and she runs marathons. In fact, she wants she runs. She's basically an ultra marathoner. Wow. She, that's her. Uh, what is? It? I've forgotten her name. Uh, but she was lovely. Uh, she was on Good Morning America, and just she's radiant human being mm-hmm. and just killing it out there. Um, and so I, if you took, uh, I would imagine we didn't do this, but if you went and took, did blood tests on her and t- t- did an EKG and all that stuff, I suspect you would find she's extremely healthy. Exactly. And so that's the measure I think I'm hearing you say. So in my case, for example, I recently got a workup um, and all the numbers came back ex- really positive. Yeah. So Maybe that's what I should be focusing on yes. rather than, you know, the how my pants fit. Exactly. Exactly. And, it, and, and to recognize it's going to be a practice to keep letting that go. Noticing how it makes you feel, doing some of the compassionate self-talk you were mentioning, and, and remembering you are not a body. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com 
to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So I'm going to give you an example. When we talk about health, we need to be broader. It's not just our bodies and what we eat. It also includes things like our our mental health, our well-being, our social determinants of health, all these kinds of stuff, how much sleep you're getting. There was a really profound study published in the 90s. It was a, I call it the, I name every study I read. I just, it's a habit I have. So I call it the food worry study. And they looked, <laughs> so the research. No, that, that was an affectionate laugh. I'm not laughing at you. Oh, no, I was <laughs> laughing back at you. I, I like to laugh. So I, I wasn't even threatened by that one. <laughs> I also want to make clear to the audience that I'm enjoying this. Oh, good, good. I like your energy. Thank you. So uh, Paul Rosen looked at four countries. He looked at the United States. He looked at France, Belgium, and and Japan. And the United States, we in the U.S., we worried the most about what we eat, and we enjoyed it the least. The French, on the other hand, oh, my gosh, they love their food, and they could care less about health back when this, this was done. And Belgium and Japan were somewhere in between. And the thing that he said was so profound was, you know, we keep worrying about if food's going to kill us or cure us. We haven't looked at what the impact of that worry is. Because when you worry, it raises cortisol. That's not good for health either. And that's what I'm seeing right now is just too much worry around the eating. Like, let's enjoy our food. Food is supposed to be enjoyable. It's, it's a source of, of pleasure. And I will tell you, Dan, I was really lucky early in my career. I was on a task force with, with Julia Child when she wanted chefs and nutritionists to get along. <laughs> So we'd have to meet once a month and come up with something. And it really impacted me. And the message to the dietitians and nutritionists of the world is like, when you're planning all this healthy stuff, please, for the love of God, consider taste. And to the chefs, please consider health. The idea, it's not one way or, or the other, you know? I just kind of rocked my head back in recognition when you said the thing about worrying. Yeah. Because it just really landed with me because I – Spend a ton of time worrying about it. this. This morning, I'm staying in a. We're, we're doing this interview in San Francisco, uh, where I'm I'm out here for work, and uh, my wife and son came, and uh, which is amazing. And uh, I try, and we can get into this. Try not to eat too much processed grains, sort of like bread stuff. But I love bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that I don't eat animal products, it's one of the few sort of uh, like sinful. Things available to me. So this morning, my okay. So so she's making a lot of gestures. So I'll let you talk in a second. So this morning, my wife ordered avocado toast for me, and when I got back from the gym, I ate it all. But was I enjoying it? Yes, but a lot of there was this worry going on in the background. So that's toxicity. Yes, yes. Can I say stuff now? Yes, please say as much as you want. So first of all, that kind of worry takes robs you from the joy. I can feel it in my body right now. Oh. So, and I, and I want to I wanna mention something, and you, and you saw me react. Yes. I was going, ah, when you said sinful. So when we start talking about foods in moralistic terms, uh, yeah, it's yeah. problematic. Yeah. And I, I try my best. Really noted. Yeah, and especially with, with kids, because kids are so um, black and white in their thinking. Mm-hmm. I eat a bad food, therefore I'm bad. I'm going to give you some examples. that are going to break your heart because it breaks my heart, Dan. So this has to do with kindergartners. 
Um, it's funny. I have a really cool Instagram feed where people comment and, and, and say things that just gets me even more energized. So someone's kindergarten teacher removed the homemade cookie mom put in the, in the lunch because the kindergarten teacher said it was bad. Now this little kindergarten is afraid to eat this kind of food that mom packs in the lunch, which is to have that fear at five years old. And how about the parent having authority over what they want to pack in their kid's lunch? Things like that. It, it, it makes me sad. I'd, I'd rather the worry be somewhere else, you know, but not not with, with, with what we're eating. We need to get back to the joy of it. I totally agree. And yet I, the, the little voice in my head, well, let's I'm hear just going to – Yes, uh, good. I, I'm glad you're cool with that. Um, is saying, well, are, isn't there empirical evidence to suggest that some food is better for you than other foods? Ooh, let's go there. Okay. <laughs> so here's a really interesting thing about data. A lot of – I'm developing kind of a, a philosophy, and you can tell me what you think about this. So a lot of the fear-mongering, it used to be from the media, from headlines from uh, uh, nutrition research news, and the, the media would sensationalize it. Now I'm seeing that the universities are putting out press releases that are putting the sensationalistic stuff in there, and the media is just merely reproducing it. A lot of these studies showing, quote, bad effects, like what you're describing, are something called epidemiological research, where it's association, not causation. Gosh, did they control for exercise in this group? Did they control for smoking? Did they control for sleeping? There's so many things they're missing. So these epi studies, because they're so large in numbers, there's thousands and thousands of people, sometimes millions, they, get, they generate lots of headlines. And these studies have a value. It tells us, you know what, this is, this is interesting. We should do a study on, on, uh, on humans and see, it, it, would an intervention data make, would, would an inter- intervention trial make a difference? Will it change the quality of, of their life? And so we don't have that much data in nutrition. There's a lot, a lot of soft stuff on there. And so food becomes preached in terms of identity like it's a religion, you know? It's, it's amazing to me how this has happened, that people think um, that they're better than other people because they eat a certain way, or that they're, that they're not so good because they didn't eat a certain way. And so this is where we need to really remove the morality from eating, you know? Okay, so I hear you when you say that we should be skeptical of the research, but yeah. are we not at a point where the research is dispositive on you know, eating a sleeve of Oreos? Oh, well, let's look at that. Okay, so that sounds so straightforward of a question, right? And I hear that. But see, here's the thing about the Oreos. Who would want to eat a sleeve of Oreos? Would that feel good, you know? So the people I meet that would eat a Me, sleeve... by the way. Okay. So that was not without... That was not judgment on other people. But good, good, good. I, okay. So this is even better that it's you, so we'll go with it. So my experience that when people eat sleeves of cookies or whole boxes, and I work with a lot of people that do. Yeah, you're sitting with somebody who used to, yes. Oh, yay. There's usually deprivation in that background. There's usually like, I, shouldn't, I can't have this food. And therefore, when yeah, my parents didn't let me have sure. Oh my god! Okay, so so then what ends up happening is the fi- when they finally get it, get to have it, whatever. There's an event that comes along. There's an emotion where you just say, "To heck with it!" You eat those cookies, and you really know in that moment you're never going to have them again. <laughs> you're never going to have them again. So I'm going to get them all right now while I can because I'm right. You're laughing. You get it, right? Yes, did I just yes, call your story? Yes, you did, right? So that's that's <laughs> the issue. And so when someone says to I'm me, "I'm enjoying this interview so," much. oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We'll have to do it again. <laughs> You're amazing. I really think, first of all, I think you're helping me right now in this moment. Awesome. And I think by extension, you're going to help tens of thousands of people. That's why I'm here. Yes, honestly, when I, and I get that from you. Yeah, so, yeah. Just a little bit of love in the middle of the day. Oh, thank you. I always take that in. Thank you. Good. So one of the things I get, because we haven't talked about the third principle of intuitive we'll eating. We'll get there. Or one of them. I, you know what's so funny? I don't know the order. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you what they are. 
I don't know the order because I never go in order. I go with, with what the person needs. Right. But one of the principles, it's the most misunderstood principle and controversial for those who don't get it, it's called making peace with food, which means all foods fit, including Oreos. And the biggest fear question I get is, oh my gosh, Evelyn, if I let myself eat whatever I want, I would never stop. That's what I was going to ask. Thank you. Okay. See, did I call you already? That was intuitive of you. <laughs> And that usually is a reflection for how much uh, deprivation there's been in your life. Because there's a permission paradox that happens when you really know you can have the Oreos or whatever it is. For the first time, you get to really ask, well, do I really want them? If I eat them now, I'm going to enjoy them. And why would I eat a quantity that doesn't feel good in my body? You know, it changes everything. It's one of my most favorite things to observe over and over again. And I have to tell you, I didn't tell you this part there's a lot of research behind the foundation of intuitive eating. It was research inspired, but now it's, you know, it's evidence-based now. But our, our model is actually based on a lot of the research around kids, where they showed this phenomenon that if you forbid a kid from having a food, that is the food that they obsess about. That's a f- food they end up sneaking. That's the kid who at the birthday party is going nuts over the, the cake and the candy, not the presents, and stuffing it in their, in their pockets. You know, And so we see that same phenomenon in adults. So as an example, when someone's... I'm going to make this complex but easy at the same time. So when someone's dieting, not getting enough to eat, and now they have forbidden foods around, uh, they can't eat this or can't eat that, and something happens and they can't stand it, so they eat like a box of Oreos. And in their mind, nothing can explain that except, oh my gosh, it must be addiction. And it's like, no, this is a combination of biology. When you're not getting enough to eat, your brain is not craving kale. I have never met a patient yet who said, Evelyn, you got to help me with this kale thing. I can't stop eating it, right? Because our brain needs carbs. It's a primary, it's, a, it's the preferred energy source. But because, and I'll say the, the experience is real. Nothing can explain this, this drive and the intensity and the urges, that primal hunger. But when you get to a point that you're ready to allow these foods in, first you need to nourish the body consistently and then allow these foods in, it changes it. So a few months ago on my, I, I just recently debated a uh, scientist, on, I love doing the veins, <laughs> on, on addiction, food addiction, so-called addiction. And to get ready for it, besides having research, I thought, you know, in my experience, I've had a lot of patients believe they were addicted to food. And with time, they realized they weren't. So I posted on Instagram, do you ever believe you were addicted to food and then realized you weren't? Oh my God, the stories that came in, the stories that came in. So to me, it's an example of the problem you start labeling things, calling things when the research isn't there to support it yet. Not uh, it's a kissing cousin to labeling something sinful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized I changed topics on you a little bit on that. No, but yeah, it's, no, no. it's a similar idea. It, it, provide, it, it creates a barrier and it creates fear. And when you have fear around eating, guess what? You're not going to want to trust your body. Yeah, and I want you to trust that digressions, even really, really long ones, are totally welcome here. So okay. don't, don't worry about it. Um, I, I, so let's just go with what you're on right now because yeah. I think it's really – it's very, very interesting to me personally. One yeah. thing I would just want to say is um, you've basically helped my wife win an argument. <gasps> um, many probably in the course of this. But one in particular as it pertains to our son uh, – I don't know that I actually we, we we really argued about this because I've just let her go with it. But her view is around dessert stuff. Mm-hmm. Just don't be weird about it. Just let them have you know. Just to to a to the point of you know. You don't want to just give him dessert for every meal, but mm-hmm. if he's you know asking for something and it makes sense, let him have it. And as a consequence, our son's not that crazy about sugar. See, that's what, that's what I'm talking about. So he's really not. Oh. Halloween, we came home. He spent the whole evening organizing the 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 candy into different groups because he liked the colors or the the kind of candy it was. Didn't want to eat any of it. See, oh my gosh! And yet, if your wise wife hadn't been 
you know, nudging you in that direction. I would have been crazy about it. Or, or he would have been crazy yeah, about well, it. Well, I would have made him crazy because my That's parents my made my, yeah. I don't want to get down on my parents because my parents, I uh, love my parents. Yeah. And they're, they, my dad used to say this really nice thing to uh, me and my brother before we were going to bed at night. He'd say, he would say, nobody's perfect, but you're as close as is possible. Oh, my God. And I feel that way about them as parents. Oh. Like, there is no such thing as perfect parents, but my parents were wonderful parents. <sighs> and yet on this one, I think they, because they're physicians and we're trying to mm. make us healthy out of this incredibly positive, loving impulse, yeah. limited our sugar intake. Yeah. And that has, I'm now realizing made me pretty crazy about sugar. Well, and, and, and let me also just uh, validate what you're saying. I've never never met a parent yet who didn't want to be doing the best for their yes, kids. Yes. And so what we say now is like, okay, you're learning something different and maybe you can do something. So I've got to tell you this story that reinforces what you're saying because it's so visual. I got a call from a parent about her seven-year-old daughter over a, a holiday. We had a white dress on, chocolate fingerprints all over her dress. And she said, honey, did you eat the chocolate, whatever it was? And she said, no, mommy. No, mommy. And the evidence was everywhere. And she said, you know, that was the first time to her knowledge her daughter has outright lied to her. And it made her wonder, what am I doing here? Am I making a mistake that my daughter needs to lie to me? So she came in and saw me. And long story short, well-meaning, but they had rigid rules, absolutely no candy. So the only time this kid got candy was at parties. This was like a party kind of thing. And the visual of that white dress with the chocolate. So I, I gave her similar advice, what I'm suggesting to you. is like, let's liberalize the food. We don't, we don't have to serve dessert for dinner, but, you know, we don't make it a big deal either. Uh, food has become Switzerland. It's it's neutral. We don't put energy into it. And long story short, it changed the whole yeah. the whole dynamic. Yeah, my wife has done a really good job. <gasps> good for her. Good for her. So um, let's get back to the thing you said before that perfectly described my mentality, which is so. Uh, let me just step back a second. Yeah. On sugar, I went through this long phase where I would just binge it to the point where I would feel awful. And yeah. I'm, when I say awful, I don't mean awful, just awful in the moment. I would feel awful the entire next day. Oh, yeah. Okay, so yeah. that's how much I was eating. Okay. And I have an addictive personality. Okay. Um, and so what I decided to do a couple of years ago was I, I was – it was yet another day where I was texting back and forth with my wife saying I feel awful today. And I, I, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to leave it alone. Uh, I can't, I'm having trouble with moderation, but I'm reasonably good at abstinence. So now I've, for the last couple of years, I've gone through the world of, with a, just a policy as, you know, you can make me, a, as my friend Gretchen Rubin says, you can make me a birthday cake, but I'm not going to eat it. Ah. And it's been reasonably successful uh -huh. in that I haven't had a day where I felt awful because I ate so much, so many Oreos the night before. But now sitting here with you, maybe I have to tweak that success story. And the reason why I'm bringing all this up is you said before a lot of people say to you, if you allow me to have that one Oreo, I'll never stop. Yeah. So that's my mentality. Yeah. So given everything I just said, how would I? How would you suggest I proceed? I'm so glad you're asking. I get this question a lot. So first of all, I'd want to make sure that you're getting enough to eat because the truth is, let's, let's say you had just a crazy day on deadline, da, 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 pulled into a meeting, you worked out, and you're finally getting home and having dinner at 8 o'clock, and let's say lunch was at 11. In other words, nine hours without eating. Mm -hmm. If you decided to make peace with sugar right then and there, you're going to eat a meal's worth, and that's not going to feel good. So I'd want to make sure your body's nourished and that when you have whatever it is that, that's sweet, that you have it at a time when you can pay 100% attention to it. Remember I asked you earlier, where does your mind go when you're mm -hmm. eating? I want your mind to be on the – I would love for your mind to be on the process of eating. Note what comes up even before you – 
do it. Uh, fears, excitement, and, and maybe being judging the fact that you're excited. Oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm so excited. That's common, by the way, really common. And then even just noticing as you're unwrapping the candy, the sound of the candy, as you put, you know what I love? Oh my God, I wish I had it here with you. But like a junior mints are my favorite ones to do a food experience with because you would, I would have you smell it. And when you smell junior mints, yes, you smell mint, you smell chocolate, you smell hints of vanilla. Then you put it in your mouth and don't even take a bite and notice what happens to the, the taste and, and the texture. Then take one bite without chewing. That's hard, hard to do. I always say, pretend I'm a kindergarten teacher. Don't go ahead of me. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, when you feel comfortable, you know, chew, notice the taste, notice the texture. And then um, after you finish swallowing, notice the remnant taste. So I actually do this in my office. That's mindful eating right there, by the way. It is. It actually is. The first lesson in mindfulness-based stress reduction is the raisin. The raisin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, This one sounds much more fun. It is much more fun. So I usually have people bring in their foods. And I, I tell you... I, I, this is what, it's just such a joy to do this work, just to watch people's minds get blown. Like, oh my God. I had somebody who used to binge on candy corn, pounds and pounds, every holiday when it would come around Thanksgiving and around Halloween. And she brought them in. We did this thing. She tasted things she'd never tasted before because it was always urgent, hurrying, do this now before no one's looking. Hurry, let's do it fast. Don't taste it. And then feeling like what you were talking about, just feeling awful afterwards. And part of that awful is not only the physicality from the eating, but the emotional labeling. So it becomes enmeshed. This is what this equals now. You know, and so we have to separate it out because all along as you're eating and when you finish, do I like how I feel? You don't have, you know, you can stop anytime you want to. Okay, so I suspect that what I'm about to say is I suspect speaking for many people in the audience, which is, wow, you are really forcing me to rethink my relationship with food. Yeah. And yet I'm still in this position of wondering how am I going to do this? I still feel if I tonight at dinner with my wife and child for the first time in a couple of years, say, okay, I'll have a little dessert. Yeah. How's that going to go? Even if I've been, I have a bag of food over there that I'll probably eat between interviews today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will be, I will be nourished by the time dinner rolls around. Yeah. And yet I have this fear that I okay. will go crazy. So, and that fear is really common. So number one, I'm glad you're challenging your thinking on this. I love that. You're but challenging I, my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you're, that you're revealing that it's, it's good. Uh, but I'd want you to do it at a time that you feel ready to do it. I see. So, like, for example, I've really noticed I've been jet lagged the last couple of days and uh, I've done a bunch of sort of like kind of mindless eating. Sure. Uh, fatigue is one of, of those mind states that can lead to that. So, you wouldn't, you would want me to feel physically and mentally strong. In a good place for us. Yeah. Today, a good place. You, yeah. you get to decide that. So, let me share can I, a little bit of research behind this. Please? It might help with the fear factor. Okay. So, there's a couple of drivers that, 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 we, that we created this principle. One of them has to do with habituation racing. Search. Habituation has to do with novelty. That when something is new, it's very exciting. One of the best stories I ever heard was from a, a habituation research who described falling in love. You're falling in love. And for the first time, you hear that person say, I love you. And it's magical and it's awesome and you're on top of the world. Ten years later, you're married, you're in a committed relationship, that same person says, I love you. And it's nice, but it doesn't, it's not the same level of, of joy. When you get a new car, when you get a new computer, when new anything. So that's what habituation is. Novelty wears off. It's like leftovers. It's really the leftover principle. You know, after I used to do some cookbooks, and I'll never forget making cakes and all my family, oh, my God, cake, 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 cake. But by the end of that chapter, I couldn't give a cake away because they knew they could have it. So what happens is when someone's been dieting or have rigid rules like no sugar, um, what happens is food stays scary and food stays exciting. 
You know, you haven't had the habituation effect. You've had the extremes. You haven't had the middle. So what we know from habituation effect, if you want to do this systematically, I actually have a systematic approach where you would choose one food, the same flavor, same brand. So, for example, if it was ice cream, maybe it's, it's, it's Haagen-Dazs ice cream, but, but you don't vary it up with Halo Top because it's very different even if it's vanilla, you know? And because we know with novelty, if you introduce new flavors, it'll take a little longer. You can do it that way if you want to. You can do it any way you want to. But when someone's really, really scared, I'll say, you know, let's create the optimal situation. What do you, number one, what do you need to feel safe? What's optimal for you? Where do you want to do this? I've had some patients say, I don't want to do it at my home. I don't want to have a bag of candy or, or a big gallon of ice cream calling my name. Can I go out somewhere? It's like, absolutely. Yes, you can. And so it's about build. what ends up happening. You don't have to eat through the alphabet of sugar to get this. But once you start having a certain amount of experiences, all of a sudden it's like, you know, that, and it's, it's just a beautiful thing to witness over and over again. Like what you see in your son could be in you as well. But there's been too much energy and too much um, rigidity around it, in my opinion, which is why it keeps it exciting. And therefore, with excitement comes fear. So you would recommend that the abstinence model that I've been bringing to sugar is probably not the wisest approach? I, yeah, that's what I would say. Um, and so that what you're recommending, if I'm hearing you correctly, is pick one super exciting, the most exciting kind of dessert. Or any kind. You can do the safest dessert, maybe something boring. Like for me, boring for my taste buds would be vanilla wafer cookies. It's dessert for some people, but it's like, no, I'd rather have a real cookie. <laughs> well, um, I, I agree with that. But, yeah. why, but if, if we're trying to go for habituation, should yeah. we pick the most exciting? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You just you, you, you keep repeating it. So the dessert of the week might, might be a certain, what, cookie or ice uh-huh. cream or whatever that happens to be. And then do what with it? Just eat, eat it, it slowly? Yeah, yeah. The and, way you described with the junior mints? Yeah. And, and I would generally recommend and not before a meal, but to do it sometime after a meal. So hunger's not driving it. It's all about the taste experience of it. And know? over time, you're saying habituation sets in, yep. and um, then I can walk into a holiday party with a cornucopia of uh, uh, pastries and not... It's uh, not a big deal. They, they think, oh my deal. God, what did you... I mean, the thing that's so funny, I, in the early days, and people didn't know what I do for a living, they're like, how can you do that? How can you only eat two bites? Like, I'm full. And they're like, whoa. It was no magic. That's that's what habituation is. But when you watch it in your kids, you're seeing that play play out over and over and over again when you watch and it in your son. How long does this habituation take? And does it have to do I have to do it systematically by food nope. or if I do it with vanilla wafers it will it will scale to everything else? No, it it's really different for everybody. I don't, I don't have a, a metric on that. Um I have some people that prefer to list every single food they're terrified of eating and create a hierarchy. Sometimes they start with the safest foods what they you know feel safe to them and then they will cuz you know what's really sad now? I have people that are afraid to eat carbohydrates. It's like, "No, not the carbohydrates. Your brain needs them." And so we're starting with basic foods like like bread and those kinds of things. But carbohydrates is a big category, as I understand it. Yes. There's a big difference between rice and Wonder Bread. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't mean it's bad, you know? Wonder Bread. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? You're going, oh, Evan, what kind of nutritionist are you? What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> but look at the French. You know, the, the French bread, for example. Yes. That's, that's, that's white flour, man. They have one of the lowest rates of heart disease in the world. And yes, we can argue that they have other health-enhancing behaviors that they do, but it's, you know, one food is not going to make or break you. One food is not going to, and unless you have like an allergy to like peanuts, it's, it's not going to do you in. So I've done this around bread too, which is I've made it too exciting. Uh-huh. I've made it illicit, and therefore it's so, super exciting. And when I start eating it, 
all of those psychologies kick in. Right. And then because in your mind, I'm not going to do this again. This is an exception because I'm jet lagged. Yes. So yes. then it's more excited. And you, now you have, the volume is going to come in because it's opportunistic eating. I'm never going to have, oh, my God, this bread is so, especially here in San Francisco. Oh, my God. So you're going to eat more quantity. And so that drives and then you don't feel good. And then you say, see, I need to have rules around my eating. This doesn't work. So again, what you would recommend is a habituation process. Yeah. Were you When you feel ready, not when, when you feel ready, not when I say you're ready, when you feel ready to do this, you know, to start to start adding sweets back in. And and same with bread. Yeah. And would you do these concurrently or separately? Whatever you feel ready to do. So for example, I've learned to get out of the way of my patients. I've had patients come in ready to do things I would have never recommended. <laughs> And they do beautifully, you know? So I have, I've had some patients that go out and buy every single food they think they can't have and put it in their uh, uh, pantry. That would terrify a lot of my other patients. But if they're ready to do that, I'm not going to stop them. If that feels like they want to do that and they're ready, okay, let's do it. I have other patients that are terrified, and so we start really slow, and that's okay too. They'll buy a teeny tiny cupcake like at Sprinkles or Susie Cakes or one of those places, the mini ones, you know, not, not, the, mm-hmm. not the regular size. That's okay, and you get to see what happens. And you know what happened? Oh, I don't know if I should tell you this. Oh, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> 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 the thing that cracks me up that happens, I would say – one out of four times, someone has a food they have this hate pull push pull relationship with. They finally give permission to eat it, <laughs> and then and then they don't like it. <laughs> really? And it's not that it tastes bad, but we've removed all the excitement, and there's no taste in it. You know, it for I had someone who uh, was into chocolate kisses, and I said, you know, if you're going to eat chocolate, why settle for? You know, there's nothing wrong with kisses, but why not go for Godiva or something else? And they said, what a great idea. (laughs) And then when they had the kisses, they didn't like them at all. It's like, oh, my God, this is like eating a crayon tip. Right. You know? (laughs) So, and it's it's, it's a surprise, you know? Or I had someone who was a French fryaholic, and she made peace with French fries, and what she discovered... In the past, she would only have them wimp and, li- and limpy off of her kids' plates or husband's plates, sneak them in lots, lots that way. And what happened to her, she was no longer willing to eat them that way. She'd only eat them away. Oh, oh, so this is another principle of intuitive eating. Aim for satisfaction, you know? It ultimately is not satisfying to overeat, and it's ultimately not satisfying to undereat. And what I love about this principle is only you can answer that. What's that feel like to you? What would a satisfying, what would a satisfying meal feel like and taste like? And how do you want to feel afterwards? You know? How do you how, okay, answer those questions? How do you I know we, we all have to answer them ourselves, yeah. but how do we answer those questions? Well, so first of all, first, it, first we have to start with a question. I've had patients say, I have no idea, and crying because they've been on so many diets following what everyone told them what to do. Because I will often ask, what's your favorite food? And they go, no one's ever asked me that question. I like to see where they have any joy in eating at all. So looking at what that might be. And sometimes they don't know, so we start doing experiments. Or sometimes they have a history, like when they were a kid, oh, my God, I used to love eating, you know, macaroni and cheese and broccoli or something like whatever, whatever it happens to be. And then ultimately, so here's a classic I used to hear. Diets are like fashion. They come and they go. They come and they go. And so this is when people were doing like big old salads, no croutons, hold the skin off the chicken and an iced tea for lunch. And I had a patient say, oh, that was really good. And I said, but was it satisfying? Oh, it was really good. Did it, how long did it sustain you? Two hours? I said, oh, so you had a meal. And it only lasted for two hours. It sounds like it's more like a snack to me. It seems like a pain. So looking at those kinds of things, and it, only you have the answer to that question. And so I, I, I consider myself kind of like the tour guide. I, I can direct you for some fun rides, you know, with eating. But you get to decide if you like it or not. It seems like mindfulness would be incredibly useful. Oh, here. it's very, very useful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Having awareness of everything. Awareness is key to all of this. Yeah. Where are we? Where are you? I mean, uh, 
So in mindful eating, we really slow down while we eat. Yeah. Is that part of intuitive eating too? Yeah. And you know what's really interesting? I don't put any emphasis on slowing down because I think it's kind of contrived. I put the emphasis on the savoring aspect of eating. Uh, I see. I because see. that's actually interesting. You can slow down and be mindless. Yes, you can. You absolutely can. Because like, back to that question, where does your mind go when you eat? If it's somewhere else, you are not, your mind's not there on the eating. So yeah, so looking at that, and so people have asked, what do I do when I eat then? <laughs> you know, there's no TV, there's no phone. Uh, it's like, so that's what you recommend to people? To, 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 to start noticing what does it taste like. In other words, when, when, when people start practicing yeah. intuitive eating, you're saying don't do it in front of the TV. Yeah. It's okay to have a conversation with another human being. Absolutely. But um, don't be reading your phone or, or listening to a podcast. And let, the only distraction would be a conversation with another person. Other than that, you're just eating. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always careful about this. So what, the phenomenon that we've seen is that when people come from a dieting background, they invariably accidentally turn intuitive eating into a set of rules, you know? And so uh, this is not well, that's rigid. where I was going with this. Well, that's why I'm, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm offering this little bump stop here, Dan. <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> you're, you're already way ahead of me. I, I should just stop interjecting. Oh, I, no, no, no. This is good because that means other people are thinking the same thing. So I would say, yes, it's a best practice, especially if you're new to intuitive eating. But let me, let me give you an example why I think it's important. And my, my patients laugh at this, and I, I love this. This is when I used to read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so at the very bottom of the front page, sometimes they would trick me. I know they didn't do it on purpose. I'd start reading a story while I'm eating breakfast, and oh, no, it's a full-length feature, two pages. That meant I had to have more cereal or more whatever I was Mm -hmm. eating. Mm -hmm. So disconnected, and then I'm so full. I thought, oh, isn't this hilarious? (laughs) I'm a creator of this model. I know this stuff, but I, I just got disconnected. So it's it happens. It's it's so normal. You still follow. You still run afoul of your own precepts. You're saying, of course, because I'm human, and, that, and that's my point. We don't. This is not pass or go. So, and actually, let's use this as a really great example. So I don't react to that. I don't go, oh, oh my god, you bad diet- dietitian. Who do you think you are? It's just like, oh, I'm uncomfortably full. What I know from my own experience, it means I'll probably be less hungry for lunch. And I don't, I don't, I don't do any penance for it. I don't do. I like, to, I like to say what my body's going to do naturally. You know. So we're really just riding. We're tuning into our bodies and riding that through the day Absolutely. instead of letting all of these external factors drive us. Including probably, people. You've been saying this all along, and it only took me now to understand it. But that's, that's actually the okay. way it works. Okay. So that's actually you're, – you're actually very advanced that you understand it right now. Okay. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sincere when I say that. It's – you are actually in charge. You're the boss. And I tell you, my young adult patients love it. I say, I work for you. <laughs> You're the expert of your body. The problem is you have fear around your body. You have mistrust. I can help you, you know, start to cultivate some of these things and the compassion that, that's needed when you, you know, make, make eating, um, I don't even like to say mistakes, but we, when you eat in a way that's upsetting to you, you know, I'm always like, what can you learn from this experience? What can you learn from this? What were the causes and conditions that this happened? Yeah, you don't feel good right now. I hear that. But what, 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 what happened? And what might you do differently next time? You know, well, for example, so what would I do differently around uh, having flown out to San Francisco a couple of days ago and experienced some pretty massive jet lag exacerbated by having a four year old in the hotel? <laughs> woke up at three fifteen, very oh, helpfully. No. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I, what can I learn from that? Because I, I can't make jet lag no longer a part of my life. Of course. And so, I did a lot of sort of mindless comfort eating. Um, how would I incorporate that? into my going forward attitude towards food. Yeah, so what I do with this is like, it's like it, you work with what you know to be true for you. And that is jet lag is a regular part of your, your career, that kind of travel. And so the question to me is, okay, 
this is, I call it heavy metal jacket time for self-care. That, and I'm in the same way, by the way. I don't feel good when I'm traveling like that. So that means I'm going to do my damnedest to get sleep. You don't have that option with a kid you know, waking up at 3.15. But I'm going to really make an effort to have meals if I can rather than snacks. I don't, mm. I don't, my preference, and this is not a right or wrong, my body feels better if I can sit down and have a civilized meal as opposed to running from snack to snack. The snack will... I do a lot of that. What, yeah. The latter. The well, running from snack to snack. And, and I do that in my office when I have busy, crazy days. But I think the reason I'm not so impacted, I don't have the jet lag or other things going on. I think there's something about the act of sitting and taking the time out that it does something for my mind besides the actual eating mm-hmm. aspect. So for me, that's something that really, really works. It might mean I'm not taking on an extra project during that time period. It's going to be yes, but not now or, or, or later. Or it's or just going to be a flat out no. You know, so I look at those kinds of things. So when you're having what I call these really vulnerable times, what foundational self-care needs do you need? And that's not a bunch of woo-woo. I've had patients call me on that. It's like, I don't want to get a manicure. I don't want to. It's like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the boring self-care, like sleep, you know, like having downtime, time for yourself, uh, time to have a meal. And sometimes you can't. And you're going to be, my, one of my best out-of-body experiences, not out-of-body, awareness experience, I am driving this was a crazy day. I'm, I'm fighting off a cold. I have a cough drop. This is multitasking, multi-eating. A cough drop on one side of my mouth, and I'm eating a bagel on the other as I'm driving to work. <laughs> and I thought, I wish I had a picture of this. And the reason I love telling that story, sometimes it's the best we can do. And that's, I'm, I was okay with that. Do you know what I mean? So this is instructive because it, your example is instructive, and I know that's why you shared it, is one can have a sense of humor as opposed to sort of an inner sort of militaristic attitude toward the mistakes that we are ultimately going to – mistake may not, even write, right, might not even be the right word. Learning experiences. Learning experiences that we have <laughs> on this course because, as you said earlier, we are human. We are going to um, overeat or eat until we're uncomfortably yeah, full, yeah, uh, to use your terminology. And you, your approach, which you just modeled, is laugh at it and learn from it as opposed to – go into some crazy self-laceration. Exactly. And that's the part that actually hurts mental health. All of that, the expectations and, and the rigidity. And that's what I find for a lot of people if they, when they struggle with this. So sometimes they have this rigid mindset that eating needs to be this certain way. It's yes. like, no. But, and the, that toxicity that you've – the cortisol that you've released into the system almost guarantees that you're going to do it again. Well, that's actually a really good point. And that is if, if you're being stressed out about your eating decisions and then, you, then, and then you're a stress eater, you've just double loaded yes. yourself up. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's go back to your, your uh, the, I have the 10 oh, par- parts of uh, intuitive eating. We, we've rejected the diet mentality. Yeah. We've honored our hunger. Mm-hmm. We're making peace with our food. Four here is challenge the food police. Oh, yeah. This is a good one for you. And you you have jumped out of order because there's a couple of other. See, I told you. That's fine. (laughs) All good. You know, this is what I do in session two. It's like, what does the person need? This is the model. But you don't have to go in order. When you write a book, you have to go in order. But yeah. So challenge the food police is working with the inner critic, the inner bully in your mind. You know, it's the collective food police that tells you how to eat and uh, those kinds of things. Like, so I like to ask, where did your rules come from? What food rules do you have? And where did they come from? And I, I'm not even so much concerned about the rules. I'm looking more at the rigidity on them. And I'm looking at what happens if you so-called violate one of your rules. How does, how does that impact you? And that's an interesting conversation right there. Where do my rules come from? I mean, they, they come from random bits of – well, actually, you know, I have a nutritionist uh, who actually is quite a, a compassion, soft in his approach, uh-huh. um, even though he's a 
vegan bodybuilder. Okay. Um, but he's pretty sort of, he has a sense of humor and Ooh. is not, uh, he's, he, I think, very much understands the disutility of shame. Mm. Um, but I guess, yeah, him or just random conversations I had with people who look really healthy. Yeah. And so and then we start looking at some of the rules. So let's say it came from a person of authority. Well, where did that information come from? It's really interesting. when we It's, it's deconstructing sometimes the, our own myths. It's like, well, who said that? Who made up that rule? You know, to like, what end? To is it serving me right now? Right. Is it serving me, or is it? I, I once had a patient. I love this. It's, it's, it's a mundane example, but it's a brilliant one. And she said, "Yeah, my rules. I have to have protein with meals." I go, "Okay, what happens if you don't?" She goes, oh, "I'm kind of disappointed." And I said, "Why?" She goes, "Because I know I know I'm going to be hungrier later." I go, "That's you know, so that was great feedback." She's not rigid about it. She's in touch with her body. I didn't work with her very long because she she was really in a really good place. Um. Well, protein is interesting because uh, I keep it in mind in part because it it's a little bit more challenging to get protein when you're on a plant based diet, and I like to exercise, and you need a certain uh, you know you don't need as much as the culture is telling you, sure, yeah. as I've learned, but you need a certain amount of protein Absolutely. in order to perform at your best. So I do try to keep that in. That is, I guess, a rule, and there are police. It could be a guide if, if if it's so if it's a guideline and a preference. That's not a big deal. It's, it's when I look at the rigidity of it. I see. I you see. know, and especially when it involves restricting. That's when I get really concerned. Gotcha. That you're eating less. All right. So that's four. Five yeah. is respect your fullness, which we've done. We've done. Yeah. Six is discover the satisfaction factor, which we've done. Yeah. Uh, seven is, and I don't think we've done this one. Honor your feelings without using food. Yeah, and so, and, and I want to re—I want to clarify on this. It's—it's it's normal to use food with feelings. When we celebrate, when we have a wedding, there's gonna. Oh, did you have wedding cake, Dan? Oh yeah, oh, I had. I had. Oh, I was God. eating okay. yeah, sugar. Those are the kinds of things that make me sad. When there's a life event that we have a tradition as a culture, and you opt out for whatever reason. Do you know what I mean? I am rethinking the whole sugar thing. So, I so love that. So. It, I'll I'll get back in touch with you after this and let that's, you know how it goes. That's awesome. So it's about expanding your toolbox for coping mechanisms, you know? So like when you travel and you're constantly exhausted, you know, what are your coping mechanisms to deal with the, the with the emotional fatigue and then the physical fatigue, looking at those kinds of things. So I, I use a kind of a two-point um, technique there. You know, when, when eating is feeling like it's beyond you, that you're eating in a way that doesn't feel good to your body, it's, it's a way of coping with emotions. Um, what are you feeling right now? That's not a hard question to ask or answer, but the one that stumps people every time is what do you need right now that's related to that feeling? What do you need right now? You know? So if I'm bored yeah, uh, and I'm reaching for something that I know is going to make me feel crappy yeah, because it has in the past. Okay. Uh, or actually, it's not so much the thing. It's the quantity of the thing. Okay. Um it may be asking myself, what are you feeling and what do you actually need yeah. in the face of this boredom? Yeah. What, what kind of stimulation can I have other than does it need to be food? Yes. You know, I've got I, – I, I have this growing list of things. I start with a couple of foundational th- suggestions I give people and then we, we grow from there. So my, my top two right now are people are curating puppy videos. <laughs> And then what's the other one? Llama videos, little baby llamas. Yes. So, because it's it's just something to do that's kind of engaging and you can look at it later. It doesn't. It has to be whatever's meaningful for you. Do you right. know? Um, meditation. Meditation. There you go. Um, eight, respect your body. Oh, that's a big one. And we kind of, we alluded to it a little bit at, at the top. And that is this idea that you're, you cannot tell by the look of someone's body what their health is and that all bodies, and I mean all, and I'm really careful when I use words all or never, and I mean when I say all, all bodies deserve dignity and respect, period. 
And that's a tough one for a lot of my patients. They've, a lot of my patients have grown up with shame around their bodies or not even shame per se, but that the only way that you can be successful in the world is to have a certain kind of appearance, you know, and they're spending all their time and mental energy around that and in pain and suffering. And I, I do see a lot of patients with eating disorders. And I think part of the reason we're seeing eating disorders double is because of all of this appearance-based stuff we got going on with our culture in part with social media and in part with diet culture. Well, what do we do about the fact that we, we, have, we can stipulate, I believe, because you've said it, to the fact that people will judge you often based on how you look. So sh- given that many of us want to navigate the world, I mean, I'm on TV, so yeah. people... If I put on a bunch of weight, may notice, may not, tend to look, this is very unfair, um, but there tends to be way more scrutiny on the females on TV than the males. But nonetheless, maybe they'll notice and maybe I'll be less successful or whatever. Um, Should I not take that into account? So we're talking about a big issue right now and it has to do with weight stigma. And that's that's a problem that I want to help solve, but it's systemic. Yes, you know. And I'll, I'll, okay, I'm going to be really vulnerable with you now. I the one and only time as an adult that I thought about dieting was when I made my debut in Good Morning America. It was four months post pregnant, postpartum rather, post pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> this is back in back in '95. Yeah, and I thought if I'm ever going to diet, it'd be now. And I, I thought about it, and I I couldn't do it from a being aligned within my values. But the point I'm saying is, I felt that 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 urge because of the perception stuff and so what we need to do this is easier said than done is we need to work past that you know that you're more than what you look it's interesting right now to be seeing more diversity in media more diversity in magazines and women's bodies and, and sizes and we and we need that so it's there's not an easy answer on that but we see the harm of weight stigma in healthcare, where doctors are looking and there's these have been documented in medical journals where they look at someone and they say oh yeah just just lose weight you'll be fine there was a woman who died a few years ago in canada was a feeling awful went after doctor 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 they said just lose weight she finally saw a doctor that saw more than her body did a workup she had a stage four cancer and died just days later so in her obituary she put that in there so that no one would go through the fat shaming that she had mm. it's a really big problem in our culture you know Wow. And yet, it's not sure it really answers what we should do as individuals. If I'm on the hunt for a new job and I want to look my best in my interviews, yeah. I this is a systemic problem. Right. I can't solve that myself, and, and yet I still need the job. So should I not be restricting my eating or no, absolutely not. doing <laughs> double sessions at Barry's Boot Camp in order to lose the weight? No, I, I think – and, and I, actually I have worked with people in the entertainment business where that's part of – I mean I'm talking about actors and I used to work in – movie industry. And I've, I've been there, seen that. And the problem is, and what I look at is what this does to you in terms of your energy. All your mind now is going to on this, this diet thing. You can't, if you're acting, you can't even emote properly because you're, you're a little dull, you know? And so it's about really connecting with what you bring to the table, what your value set is, period. And I would hope, hope, hope where you're at in your career right now, that that's what really matters for you. And that maybe you can start being part of that message, Dan. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I'm really, there's so much here that's electrifying. Yeah, um, and this is a big one, an important one, too. No, I'm, I'm referring to everything you're saying. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I, 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 one thing that's just particularly on my mind right now is just thinking about how much energy I've wasted on this. Yes, oh, you know, I will tell you, I can't tell you how many tearful sessions I've had with people around that, the amount of time spent, the amount of money spent, 
postponing a vacation or not going to an event because they didn't want to blow their diet. Um, and this one, this, I'll tell you this one I hear a lot from parents is how cranky they were and yelling at their kids in a way that wasn't aligned with their parenting values, you know? And I don't say this to guilt or shame anyone, but just to shed the light on, there are consequences when the body's not getting enough to eat. Our body, you know, we have this illusion that we have 100% control over what we eat. It's kind of like breathing. We can, we know all the stuff with the breath you can do in meditation, but you can also choose to stop breathing. But you also know the moment you stop to choose breathing, your body will finally make you breathe. You'll pass out. And when you come to, it'll be, oh, you're going to inhale the whole room. And the same thing with eating. If you stop eating enough food or restricting to a certain level, there gets to be a point where your body mind can't stand it. You're going to be thinking about food more. It's in in the brain aspect. And there's going to be a drive. And then when you finally eat, you're going to inhale it. It's not a little polite you know, snack here. So nine exercise, feel the difference. Yeah. And actually, it was interesting. We have a, our fourth edition's coming out in, in June 2020. We're actually changing the word to movement instead of exercise because so many people have had um, a lot of shaming around that in terms of the militant kind of stuff. But the idea is that you move in a way that feels good. So having the, the, the joy of movement, you know, is so, so key. And, you know, I don't know if you know my, know my athletic background, but I'm someone who naturally likes to move. I, I ran on the boys' track team because they didn't have a girls' track team when I was in school. And then competed in college and then Olympic trials in, in the marathon. So I'm, I'm someone who I like exhilarating movement, not because of what it's doing to my body, but I love how it makes me feel during it and then afterwards. Wow. Well, now I have to admit that, you know, I exercise most days uh, and I do like the way I feel afterwards, but it, I think that very often I'm doing it not because I'm enjoying it in the Ugh. moment, but I'm doing it because I like. I want to make sure that I'm healthy and I want to make sure that – and I, I have some goals either stated or unstated internally about the way I want it to show up on my physique. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So – and what, what happens at least with some of the people I see is when, when the exercise or movement is mainly about the calories burned or physique-oriented, it's easy to burn out. And number two, if someone's on some kind of uh, weight loss diet – and they're exercising. I don't know how they do that. that that's hard to do. Yeah. And so a common pattern I see is they stop the diet and they stop working out and they have a lot of shame. And my answer is, I don't know how you do that. A Ferrari is not going to go if there's no gas in the tank. It's not going to go around the track right. and your body doesn't, doesn't want to go either. And how do we uproot those? So I'm not doing that. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not on a diet. But Yay. Um, uh I, I do all different forms of exercise yeah. and I really like the way I feel feel and a little bit how I look afterwards, yeah, yeah. but I don't often enjoy the doing of the thing. Yeah. So uh, you're saying I should just totally orient toward exercise that I actually enjoy in the moment? For the most part, but sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Maybe meditation is a better example for me to use. I often don't enjoy it while I'm doing it. I enjoy the aftermath of it. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the quality of my life, but sometimes it's a pain in the butt for me to go sit on the cushion. It's just the way, you know what I mean? And so that can be that way sometimes for, for movement as well, but knowing that you get these other secondary benefits, I think that's fine. So fine. So you, I, I, mean, I swam a, a bunch this morning and it was a little monotonous, but so I might not have loved it in the moment, but um, I do like the way it makes me feel. And if I'm tuning into that, yeah. there's the power. Exactly. Exactly. I will say one thing. I've, I've mentioned Grace Livingston, who's one of the producers on the show. She's also helping me. I'm writing a book right now about kindness, and she's uh, sort of my partner in crime on that as a, a, a heading up a lot of the research and also giving me feedback as I go. And uh, she she refers to herself as a book therapist. Oh, um, I love that. It's really, co- it's really cool. And uh, she um, 
no, she had the suspicion that maybe there was a little bit of um, difficult energy around my approach to exercise, uh-huh. and had, gave me a suggestion to occasionally drop in the notion while working out of gratitude. Oh, I love that. So I'll be working out, and I'll notice that I'm on some big jag of, wow, I'm not doing enough, or this is not going to be enough for the day, or this isn't going to make a difference on whatever metric I want. And just to the best of my ability, boom, just be grateful that I have a body that's functioning at this level, at this age, et cetera, et cetera. So many people don't. Uh, And I found that that to be a pretty pretty close to a silver bullet. Uh, I I have to drop it in a bunch Mm -hmm. uh, into my mind, as I did during swimming today. Wow, this is boring. Hey, but you can do this thing. Uh, And, you know, I was able to get swimming lessons not long ago so that I can do it correctly, but I'm grateful that I had the means to do that, et cetera, et cetera. So that, anyway, I just share that. as Well, I think that's a really good point. And then I think what I'd add to that too, that it's okay to take a day off if you're not feeling good, if you're not feeling it. Yes. You know, because yes. you don't want to get injured also. Yes. That was the hardest thing I ever learned how to do is that rest is just as important as training, especially if you're going more at intense, um, intense activities. I just recently, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I, my aspiration is to be a ping pong player ninja style. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a ping pong coach and uh, I love it. And one of the reasons why, besides the fact I love it, <laughs> is I don't see many injuries around at all, you know, because I want the longevity of, of doing this. My, my other sports I've, I've been in, injured in. So, yeah. Let's do the last. Uh, okay. The la- the the tenth of your uh, 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 pillars here. Okay. Which is one that we've mentioned, but I think it's worth digging in again because I can hear skeptics out there asking this question in their heads over and over again. Honor your health with gentle nutrition. Right. So in other words, you don't beat yourself up over how you ate, and it's more about looking at your pattern of eating over time. And the biggest kick I get is when someone asks me, "When can I start eating healthy, Evelyn?" <laughs> And my answer is anytime you want to, but usually they're coming out of the rabbit hole of dieting. They're making peace with food and they don't want to go back to the rigidity of which they had, you know? And so it's looking at those kinds of things. It's looking at, yeah, adding some more vegetables into your eating and those, those aspects. And so one of the things I like to stress is intuitive eating is actually 10 principles. You can't cherry pick them and just say it's, it's just make peace with food. If you go onto Instagram and you look at the hashtag of intuitive eating, all you see are pink donuts. (laughs) I think because people are so excited they can eat these things, that's what they write about. They don't write about the honor your health with gentle nutrition, but that's still a part. And you get to a point, you don't apologize or explain what you're eating, whether whether it's donuts or whether it's a salad with, with kale and tofu grilled into it. It's, 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 it's your body, your business, you know? Okay, so uh, if, if, if people find themselves at the end of this conversation and in the position which I find myself right now, which is really intrigued, yeah, what are the next steps? What what they want to do? I want to do your program. Oh my gosh! Wow. So, <laughs> so we do have a workbook, the Intuitive Eating Workbook. They could that that's one way. It's 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 more intense than the book. There's a lot of questions in there to really help you get connected. So read the book, get the workbook. Get the workbook for sure, for sure. We have a free online community, the Intuitive Eating Online Community. You can follow me on on Instagram. And so the way that I say is this: that most people can actually do this on their own. But what happens sometimes is they, when you have a long history of shame around your body or around dieting, it might you might need some help with that. And so we have trained people that that are trained in our method. And you could check that out too. So you may have somebody locally who could yeah. be your counselor. Exactly, or certified intuitive eating counselor. Yeah, that's excellent because it sounds like for I, I just to repeat what you just said, and I'm thinking this may be even true for me that as as exciting as a, listening to a conversation like this may be, or as exciting as a book and a workbook may be. You may need an accountability partner or something. You, to work you know, with. and I got to tell you, okay, so can I just I guess I got to tell you this. So we have we have. 
over 900 people in 23 countries trained in this. So I just finished training three groups of Ukrainian psychologists. Wow. They want to train because the Moscow the uh, Moscow psychologists got trained, <laughs> which I think is great. But it's it's really neat that 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 they're, you want to use this method. Do you know what I mean? Because imagine if every health professional that you saw your doctor, you saw your trainer, you saw your nutritionist, and you're getting a similar message. I think we'd be we'd be in a better place in this world. I'm going to do it. Oh, I'm, that's awesome. Um, anything in closing? Is there any point that I didn't give you a chance to make during the course of this interview? My gosh, I feel guilty by not giving you some answer to that question. Something profound. <laughs> do you feel satisfied at the end of this meal? Oh my God, I feel satisfied at the end of this conversation. Yes. I actually do. I feel heard and understood, which is actually really a really great feeling. The fact that it's opened up your mind to some possibilities is thrilling to me. I can guarantee you, I got more out of this than you did. Oh, well, yay! <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Big thanks to Evelyn. Um, since recording that interview, I've I've really been doing a lot more studying of her writings, and um, I actually even plan to uh, start working with her personally. I, I've, uh, I've I'm getting a lot out of her work, so I really appreciate her coming on the show, and and perhaps more to come from her uh, in the future. Let's do the voicemails uh, as we did last week. We're going to have a ringer answer your questions. Ray Hausman, who's the head of the uh, the coaching unit, uh, these coach, these these ninjas, meditation ninjas, we employ at the Ten Percent Happier app to who can answer uh, subscribers' questions uh, if they're running into difficulties or if they're curious about something. Uh, Ray runs that unit, and she's going to answer the voicemail questions this week. Here we go with voicemail number one. Hey, Ron, I'm new to the meditation, and I find it comforting on working on quieting my mind and relaxing and finding ways of. Relaxing in many situations, find myself getting stressed at work quite a lot, and meditation seems to be helping. But I'm also a very visual person. In particular, when you focus on the breath, the rise and fall of the chest, or even the sensation in and out the sinuses, I find myself mentally picturing the human anatomy and doing almost like an animation of the breath going in and out of my sinuses or even in and out of my chest through the airways. And I was wondering if a lot of people have this issue of having these mental images and if they are even an issue, should you try to get rid of these images and just focus on the sensation? Or is it okay to have mental images of the physical process of you breathing. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much for your question. It's absolutely okay and fairly common to have visualizations of the breath occur when aiming to direct the attention to the sensations of the breath. And it's important not to make the visualizations the primary focus of the attention. There's no need to try and get rid of the images but we want to direct the attention to the experience of the body when we are attending to the breath. Visualizations and images are like thoughts. They are products of the mind. In order to support the mind in attending to the body sensations, it can be helpful to discern where we feel the breath most easily. Some people have an easier time feeling the sensations of the breath in the rise and fall of the abdomen. Others feel the breath most readily in the rise and fall of the chest. 
and some people find it easiest to feel the in and out flow of the air at the nostrils. If you're having a difficult time feeling the sensations of the breath, it can be helpful to rest a hand on the abdomen and feel the movement of the abdomen through the hand. Or put a finger in front of the nostrils and feel the airflow push against the finger. With time and practice, the mind becomes more sensitive to the sensations of the breath and the support of the hand or the finger won't be necessary. I hope this is helpful and offers you some support in your explorations with your practice. Thanks again for your question. Thanks for that, Ray. Uh, let's do voicemail number two. Hey, Dan. Uh, this is Harrison. I'm 28 in New York City. I've been meditating for about two years. Appreciate everything you're doing uh, for the practice, bring everything to the mainstream. Um, unfortunately, I have asthma, wheezing, and chest tightness. Um, and as you can imagine, focusing on my breath uh, so closely can sometimes be distracting. Um, all I can think about sometimes is, you know, the tightness in my chest or the fact that I can't breathe so well. Um, this is a narrow, you know, group of people, but I imagine this could be applied to people with a cold or something like that. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are and how to deal with it. Um my thought would be you would just accept it and do the best you can uh, or maybe take a different center of focus. Uh, but anyway, uh, hope to hear from you, and thanks. Thanks for this question. It's a good one. When there's constriction in the breath or the breath feels strained for various reasons, it can be helpful to widen the scope of awareness and allow the attention to rest on a more overall sense of the body. When we practice meditation, we are interested in observing what's happening in the present moment experience in the mind and the body, and making skillful choices in how we relate to what's happening. In this situation, widening the field of attention can support the mind in finding some sense of relaxation or ease in the midst of a more challenging bodily experience. We can also observe the tendency of the mind to get more narrow and focus on the difficult aspects of what we are experiencing. This is natural, and in certain situations, it's an important response. However, when we're practicing meditation, or when we are in life situations that aren't calling for emergency responses, we can begin to ease this reactive tendency of the mind to become more narrowly focused on what's difficult and allow for the difficult aspect of our experience to be part of what's known in the moment, while we also hold an awareness of more easeful or settled aspects of our experience. Sometimes, if the body is feeling really unwell, it can be helpful to expand the awareness even further out, and allow sounds to be held in the field of awareness, and let the more uncomfortable feelings related to the body unfold in a more spacious mind field, that's being balanced by having an awareness of sound. I hope this is helpful and offers you some sense of direction to explore in relation to this experience. Thanks again for your question. Big thanks again to Ray for doing this, for pitching in. Really appreciate it. It's good stuff. Uh, before we go, just a reminder, sign up for the Meditation Challenge. It starts on January 6th. You can sign up inside the app or you can look at the show notes on this podcast episode and uh, find some links there to sign up. You'll be able to join me and Alexis Santos, one of the great 10% Happier Meditation teachers in the challenge. You can make sure that I'm not a huge hypocrite and that I'm actually meditating. Um, 
And uh, also look in your feed this week. We're gonna we're gonna put up a talk from uh, from the app. In the app, one of the things we do is we post these like five to seven minute long wisdom bombs. These little talks from uh, great meditation teachers, and also occasionally one or two from me. Uh, and this week, we're gonna post one from me about how to uh, cultivate a meditation a meditation habit. Before I go, uh, I also want to thank everybody who uh, contributes to the show. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omohundro, Josh Cohan. Thanks to all of you. Really appreciate your hard work. And uh, I'll see you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.